Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been asking you for the last few months what you want to know about how your town government works. It's all part of something we're calling Curious, where we listen to you first and we find out what you want to know. We think town government is a good place to start, and today we have two listeners joining us who have questions for us to tackle. They want to know about the mayors in their two towns, and every town in our state can be very different. Coming up, WNPR's digital editor, Heather Brandon, will tell us more about Curious what it's all about, and how you can send us your questions. Now, understanding why things are the way they are is rooted in understanding our history. Connecticut historian Walt Woodward will also join us later to remind us how our state ended up with 169 towns. It departs from county government seen in other parts of the U.S. And later, we'll dip further back into our state history to reflect on a beloved tree, the Charter Oak. Do you have questions about Curious or a future question we should answer on the show? Join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome to the studio Heather Brandon, digital editor for WMPR. Hi, Heather. Hey, Lucy. Also in studio with us is West Hartford resident Susie Craig. Hi, Lucy. And on the phone, Doug Hackett, who's from Southington. Welcome to the show, Doug. Hello, Lucy. So before we get to our listeners, Heather, let's hear from you. Tell us about Curious. Explain it for people who are listening now. I'm so excited we can announce this today. Um, so Curious stems from an idea that was born in Chicago at WBEZ, a public radio station there, where they started something called Curious City, and they were asking the audience, the listeners, what do you want to know, and then fielding questions from them and then sending their reporters out to find out the answers. And those turned into really amazing stories. And uh, the founder... Jennifer Brandell has since gone on to leave WBEZ, but she started something called Harkin, which now offers this tool to newsrooms around the country. And um, so we have taken them up on that, and ours is called Kinetic Curious. And the main idea is that we're looking for the for listeners' help focusing on what they think is most important, because we think that that's where there's really interesting stories. Our journalists don't always know what the most interesting stories are. Newsrooms don't have the biggest brains, you know, in the world that they need. What do need. you mean? <laughs> they need the audience's help. Focusing on, on sometimes really nuanced things that, uh, that journalists might not know about. And um, when we get better at this, we can also partner with the listeners who ask the questions. And so we're kind of doing that today. And this is something that other public radio stations, BEZ was the first, but they're all experimenting. What have they seen when they've rolled this out? Well, they've seen sometimes award-winning journalism. And there's some really fantastic examples of, uh, of compelling questions that have been asked that you didn't think were going to unveil something uh, you know, as compelling as it is. Um, a couple things that come to mind for me are the, uh, there's a story from San Francisco. There's, their project is called Bay Curious. A listener had a question about a dancer that they always saw on the, over, the highway overpass. And they were like, who is that person and why are they always there? And there's all this traffic going under the overpass, but you see someone dancing. And so a reporter went out with that person who asked the question and found out 
who it is, and they did a video and um, and a report on the radio about that dancer. And I'm not sure that that's one of the award-winning examples, but it's a really creative one. Mm-hmm. So how did we, I know, I know we know how we tried to get questions, but why did we choose this format uh, to try to hear from our listeners to get questions for us to answer? The format of the, the video. Of the video. Yeah, we made a video um, <laughs> where you saw Lucy ask, hey, what questions do you have about town government? So one of our challenges is to try to explain to you, the listeners, what we're looking for. And so our video had like sample questions like suggestions we didn't want to take all the all the best questions away from the listeners but we wanted to to sort of tease you with this is the kind of stuff we want you to think about like what's the most compelling thing that you've had on your mind or that you've always wondered about like when you go to vote and you're like how does this work why does this person ask me for that when i go to vote and then um anyway we we shared that video on social media and it got uh, a lot of shares a lot of likes which we thought was great um, and we got some questions. And I brought that up because not everyone who's listening may go to our Facebook page, and not everyone who's going to our Facebook page may listen to the show, but we were getting a lot of, of, of views, and then we were getting a variety of questions that didn't really fit how our town government works, that theme. Right. Yep. So <laughs> we had this uh, tentative name that we called it Ask WNPR, and uh, so we found we were getting questions about um, membership, like, my credit card number changed. How can I make sure that's updated? Or programming, um, when are you going to air such and such? And is Downton Abbey coming back now? <laughs> the live stream isn't working. How can I make sure it's working? How do I get it on my on my iPad? Um, and we're like, yes, they're asking questions of WNPR. That's good. <laughs> we need to direct those questions in the right way. But we were looking for questions about town government. And, it, and so we're like, okay, how can we make sure the audience knows that that's what we're looking for? This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a, a, new, a new engagement tool that WMPR is using called Kinetic Curious. WMPR's digital editor Heather Brandon is here to, to explain uh, why we're doing this and to get you to join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Now we heard from a lot of people and some of the questions fit into you know, how does our town government work? And so two of the listeners that um, submitted questions are joining us now. Uh, I mentioned uh, Doug Hackett from Southington. Doug, again, uh, tell us a little bit about Southington and how long you've lived there. Um, I've lived here since uh, 1998, um, and uh, my understanding is that Southington has had a town manager and a town council form of government since about uh, 1966. So my question was, how did we come to this form of government? And, you know, possibly would, uh, if other towns would be interested in converting to this kind of government, which I think was very successful for us, um, is there a process or are there any guidelines on how to convert from having a mayor to having a town manager? And um, I'll just uh, take my answer up there. All right. Well, we want you to stick around, Doug, because coming up in a few minutes, we're going to actually have the, the Southington uh, town manager join us to explain uh, the process. But um, that is an interesting question, the idea that you know some towns don't have mayors. I know um, there are towns that have selectmen. Uh, there are towns that have a strong form mayor, such as Hartford. Um, so that's an interesting question, and we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. Also, West Hartford resident Susie Craig submitted a question, and she's here in studio. Susie, what was your question? My question was, uh, why is the mayor of West Hartford a volunteer position? I'm relatively new to West Hartford um, and just assumed that it was a paid position. I didn't realize that there are some towns that have it as a volunteer position. That's also interesting. So the idea that the, some mayors aren't getting paid, they're volunteers within their town councils? 
Mm-hmm. And do you think that other people wondered this too, or was this something like what made you want to ask this question? Right. So I'm relatively new to West Hartford. I um, just recently started getting involved in some local initiatives. Um, so I started working with the mayor um, and a few others from the town on we're trying to get a dog park in town. And um, it just I just assumed that it was a paid position because she was, you know, she's relatively new, but she's so responsive and she's very engaged and involved. And I see her everywhere. And, and I'm and then I found out it was volunteer, and I thought, well, how does she live this life? What is, what could her <laughs> life actually be like? Um, you know, and I, and I don't know what her, um, if she has a day job, what her day job is. Um, so I'm intrigued about what the limitations are for someone who can't volunteer for such a weighty position such as that. Um, so my thought was, you know, um, maybe that's something I want to consider someday, but my gosh, I I think I'll always need a day job. So is that something that is really open to everyone? Good question. And I'm curious, Susie, have you asked other people in the community this question? And have they been stumped? Most people I asked had no idea that it was a volunteer position. Um, and does that mean she doesn't campaign for it? It's within the council. They they will, um, I guess, nominate someone to be the mayor? I believe, and now you're probably asking questions that I don't know <laughs> if I can answer, but um, I believe that when... Um, when we vote, the um, the candidate that receives the most votes gets the mayor position, and then there's other town council. I believe that's how it works. So we'll um, find out a little bit yeah, more in a couple yeah. of minutes, but it's a good question. Now, you're a Connecticut native? Yes. So the town that you grew up in? Lebanon. Lebanon. And do you what was their town government? First selectman. Actually, a, a friend of mine is the first selectman now. Mm-hmm. Um, First selectman, second selectman, third selectman. And uh, to my knowledge, that's their job. I I don't think it's a volunteer position. I believe it's a paid position in the tiny little town of Lebanon. I could be wrong about that, but I believe so. So we have two questions now. Uh, Susie wants to know, um, you know, why is West Hartford's mayor a volunteer and and the the consequences of that? And also, uh, Doug from Southington uh, wants to know why uh, Southington does not have a mayor. We're going to have answers to the questions in a few minutes. Before we go to break, though, Heather Brandon, again, our digital editor. So this is all part of Kinetic Curious. How are we going to use this tool in the future here at WNPR? Well, uh, we're going to be exploring a couple other topics in the near future. Um, Coming up, we want to find out your questions about New Haven. And we're also thinking about looking into your questions about transportation around the state. So you should keep an eye out for what we're calling prompts, which is, you know, our uh, solicitation to you for a question. We are not looking for your your uh, your answer so much as what you're curious about that leads to really interesting stories. So keep an eye on our webpage and on our social media. So WMPR.org. Thanks so much, Heather Brandon, again, our digital editor. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We're going to answer the questions that our listeners have. And we're going to hear from Connecticut State Historian, too. That's right after this short break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're answering listener questions about how their town government works. In studio with me is West Hartford resident Susie Craig, who wanted to know why West Hartford has a volunteer mayor. And on the phone is Doug Hackett, who wanted to know why Southington doesn't have a mayor. And before we bring in two people to answer their questions, we thought state historian Walt Woodward could remind us how Connecticut got to this place of all these different towns. Walt, welcome back to the show. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So uh, give us a, a refresher uh, history course here on Connecticut's 169 towns. How did we get here? Sure. Well, you know, Connecticut is unusual, even from new, the rest of New England states that have a big town tradition, in that Connecticut was a colony founded by towns rather than a colony that founded towns. Hartford, Wethersfield, and Windsor were founded even before they got together in 1637 to form a colonial government. So the towns were the foundation of the colony government, and they became really the heart of government in the early years. Towns were immensely powerful at the beginning. They, did, they, did, they had more authority over your life than I think anyone today would believe. They could tell you where your house could be where you had farmland, how much you could have, who you could sell your property to, even how much you paid for to support the local minister. And, of course, they told you you had to go to church on Sunday. And so now we know in, in 2017, so we know that there are selectmens uh, who lead towns. We have council managers, also a strong form uh, mayor uh, and city council. And then there's these other uh, towns that have something called other under this uh, list I have in front of me, um, where they may have a mayor and a board of representatives. But you were saying, Walt, that this is unique uh, in New England to have this town, um, this town meeting form of government. Well, the, the town meeting, New England towns were usually founded by a group of people who joined with a minister from England mm-hmm. to come to come to the colonies. And because they formed their towns as a group, they took over so many of the uh, of the powers of government that older colonies or later colonies would give to the state and give to county governments, which were always insignificant relatively insignificant in connecticut so this idea that you keep government very close to home and that the people themselves can come to the town meeting and vote on how much they pay for taxes and what kind of improvements they want to afford and want to commit to is as old as new england itself and it's kind of embedded into this region's dna and is that why we get resistance at times when we, we discuss the, the importance of regionalizing services? Do we need all of these towns and cities? Well, it's, you know, we, we're, I, I think it'll be very unusual that we'll ever get away from towns and cities. But one of the things we never had that I, in, in many ways I think we could use today is strong county government. Counties were formed in 1666, which is 30 years after the towns and, and, you know, a generation after the colony was founded. And they got they got very little powers. The only thing only powers they were given were to run the county jail and conduct kind of mid-level court cases. When in later states, the counties took on a whole lot of functions. They filed deeds. They kept care of county roads. This never happened in Connecticut, 
And over the years, as counties, you know, counties did take on more functions in Connecticut through the years, but they never had independent authority. They were the creatures of the state or the creatures of the towns. And finally, in the 1950s, they had evolved to the point where really they, they ran the county jail still. They uh, did agricultural extension services, and they ran the county home for children. In the 1950s, they both the jails and the county homes were rocked by scandals. And also, the, the county had served as a system for Republican patronage. Well, the Democrats effectively took over government in 1958, and they had railed against county government for 30 years, saying it was inefficient, and then it was rocked by scandal, and they simply said it didn't do its job very well. In the 1959 assembly, they passed a law abolishing county government, and uh, we effectively did away with it. We still have counties, but they're only geographical units. In other states, later states, counties had more powers, more functions, and as government became more complex and more expensive, they often turned to these county governments to take on the duties that regional governance governments perform. So today, as we're looking for ways to economize, it would be really nice to have an efficient and effective county system to turn to to do some of these functions. But for reasons that are very good, but kind of unique to Connecticut, we did away with counties. And now we don't really have a natural place to go to to create regional groups. Well, that's Walt Woodward, our uh, state historian. Thank you for that explanation, Walt. And I want to bring into the conversation now uh, Gary Brumbach, who's town manager of Southington. Uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So we invited you on because we heard from a listener, uh, Doug Hackett, who wanted to know why Southington does not have a mayor. You're the town manager. What's the answer? Uh, well, they've, that was their uh, decision. Uh, as Doug said, and I heard his question earlier in the program, uh, we formed the council manager form of government from uh, the Board of Selectmen form in 1966. Uh, and there was a considerable debate at the time uh, that revolved around what form they wanted to evolve in, uh, into as they continued to, uh, to grow. Uh, so they debated that. Uh, and the uh, the process is through developing the charter or any subsequent charter revisions. Uh, and they came down on the side of a council manager form of government. Uh, we do not have a mayor. What we do have is a chairman of the town council. Uh, so our process is the town council uh, is elected uh, every other year in odd years. Uh, and then they self-choose the chairman. Uh, so... I am appointed by uh, the majority of the town council, uh, and I work at the pleasure of the town council. And then the rest of the organization uh, works for me, or uh, we have a board of fire commissioners, a board of uh, police commissioners, uh, and a couple of other boards that kind of help uh, manage the, uh, the organization. I understand, Gary, you have worked in other parts of the country. Um, what do you think of the council manager form of government that you're in now? Well, I have, uh, I have worked in uh, 
all three towns that I've worked in have all been council manager form of government. So uh, I'm a big believer in it. I think it, it allows you to blend uh, two aspects of what government is, is best able to provide, and that is uh, professional management with political responsiveness. Uh, so I work for uh, nine uh, people who are elected by the people, uh, and but I also provide 20 years of experience in managing local government. So I think it's, uh, in my opinion, it's, uh, it's the perfect blend to, to be responsive and professional. I wanted to bring the Southington resident back into the conversation. That's Doug Hackett. So, Doug, what do you think of this form of government in your town, and how effective do you think it is? Oh, I absolutely agree with our town manager. Um, I do think it's much more effective than uh, having an elected mayor. Uh, my biggest concern with having an elected mayor is uh, how much of a detractor having to run an electoral campaign every so often uh, may be from performing his professional duties as an executive that's supposed to be managing the town. Um, so I do very much appreciate our form of government and uh, and also how much it has brought our community together. Uh, when Gary first came on, he was voted uh, along party lines by the council. But since then, uh, we have unanimous, unanimously approved you know, his raises and we very much appreciate the, the job that he has done for us here. That's very kind, Doug. I appreciate it. Well, we want to thank uh, Gary Brumbach for joining us again, town manager of Southington. Gary, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. I enjoyed being here. And I, I wanted to go back to our state historian, uh, Walt Woodward, who's on the line. So if a government, if a town wanted to make a change, it all relates back to the charter. Correct. And how easy is it to that process? I've heard different things. <laughs> Well, it depends on the town. It depends on the charter. Their resistance to change is another deeply ingrained uh, Connecticut trait. We are the land of steady habits. So anytime there's a charter revision, there's, uh, you know, there, there's, it's a subject of great discussion at the community level. The uh, process of revising charters, as I understand it, can be complex. It can be simple, depending on what the town's constitution is. Um, I think it's sort of the the grassroots willingness to make the change that fundamentally decides. We we still today are dominated by the first selectman town meeting plan in Connecticut. Of course, most of it is in the smaller communities, but over a hundred of our 169 towns are uh, primarily first selectman uh, town meeting plan towns. So we've got a long way to go if we are going to a much more regional kind of government. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're answering a couple of our listeners' questions. It's part of a, a new tool that WNPR is using called Kinetic Curious. And if you have a question, you can join the conversation and tell us what you'd like to hear for a future show segment. Let's talk. Let's tackle that second question. Uh, Susie Craig from West Hartford uh, wanted to find out why um, West Hartford has a volunteer mayor. So to help us answer that question, we're joined now by Jennifer Decola Matos, executive director of the Noah Webster House and West Hartford Historical Society. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's hear a little bit about uh, West Hartford history and how uh, the town got the government that it has today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something important to know is that West Hartford actually didn't become a town until 1854. So it was the West Division of the city of Hartford for from its inception in 1679 until it finally was granted its own um, 
charter in, in 1854. And they had tried for um, since the 1790s to break away and had enough votes to try to secede from Hartford, but Hartford did not allow it. So finally in 1854, they were able to set up their own government and they did just what Walt was talking about. They had a town meeting form of government with a decentralized um, administration, and they actually elected about 40 people to, on the board of selectmen, and they they followed through with that um, for over 60 years. And I understand that West Hartford has this history of, of volunteers uh, to do um, what we consider part of a town government today, people that are paid. Can you give us a little bit of history of that? Right, exactly. So pretty much up until 1919, um, the, 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 the town government was, was run by these 40 selectmen, and it was a volunteer position. In 1919, West Hartford became the first town in Connecticut to adopt the, the town um, council, town manager system of government. And so basically, it had a town council that was elected, and they were volunteers, and then they appointed the town manager, which is a salaried position. And we were hearing, we asked Susie earlier about um, how the mayor within the town council becomes the mayor, and she mentioned the top vote getter. Can you can you confirm if that's the case? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. So West Hartford doesn't actually have a mayor officially until 1947. So starting in 1919, the charter states that there will be 15 members on the town council, but they're all equal. Um, in 1935, they revised the charter um, they reduced the number of counselors to nine, later to seven, which, of course, now it went back up to nine. Um, and with, in 1935, they said, within the town council, the council shall select their leader, and that person would be the chairman or the president of the council. Um, and so that happened from 1935 to 1947 when they decided that this leader would officially be named mayor. And... In practice, um, it happens that usually um, the town council elects as their leader, who will be the mayor, the person who has the most votes in the election. So, Susie, does that answer your question? It does. It does. Thank you. What other questions do you have about West Hartford now that we understand um, how uh, the the mayor position is technically sure. volunteered? Yeah. So, West Hartford is interesting to me because you know, the population is over 63,000 people. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that it was originally, I, wrote, I read that it was a parish of Hartford, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then it became, it's they splintered off, became their own town. But as someone who wasn't born and raised there, I see the town as this interesting mix of city and town. So it's, I grew up in a town, small town. And my, so my definition of town is, um, you know, limited to a couple of stores and, <laughs> you know, um, a few stoplights. Um, but um, I see West Hartford as a city, but it seems to kind of try to act like a town. So it kind of seems to have an identity crisis around that. Yeah. Um, well, West Hartford experienced an amazing amount of growth at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and and pretty much up until the 1890s, we've, we were looking at a population in West Hartford of about 3,000 people. So it really was hmm. a small town, not even just a town. It was a small hmm. town, and it was very agriculturally based. 
um, starting at the turn of the century, um, you have a lot of industry coming into um, the Elmwood section of West Hartford. A lot of um, population is coming over, and then it just there's this whole s- uh, spurt of development, and that really I think is what led the town to adopt the the, the count, um, council manager system of government. So it, it just really the population started. Um, expanding drastically, so it went from that three thousand, um, and then by by um, nineteen thirty, you're looking at thirty thousand residents, and then it's kind of gaining about ten thousand every decade. So mm-hmm. that by the time you got to nineteen sixty, you're looking at sixty thousand people. So it grew very very quickly in terms um, of its history. Um, you know, it's interesting when we're talking about you know how our town governments formed and. Now we know that that Hartford is struggling, and it's a city that could um, see bankruptcy. And you know, right across the, the border, we have West Hartford, which is an affluent town, doing well. Um, I mean, when we when we look at this, um, you know, this issue, I mean, what are some ways that um, you know communities can support our cities? This is something we hear from uh, Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin, who's going around the state asking that very question. Jennifer, <laughs> I'm sure you hear from lots of residents in, in um, West Hartford. There is a, there's town pride, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely pride in West Hartford. I feel like it's it's definitely a group of people that is very invested in their own community um, in, in all different aspects. You know, the turnouts they get to town council meetings and uh, referendums and things like that is amazing. Um, so I suppose if we could try to get people like the residents of West Hartford to think of the community in more of a regional way. Like if, you know, if people really understood that West Hartford was part of Hartford for so many years, someone like Noah Webster, um, you know, he he lived in the West Division, but he was very much a part of the Hartford culture. And you would actually be able to walk, you know, you would walk to Hartford or, you know, ride your horse there and, mm-hmm. and come back. And it was, um, if you wanted to do anything, that's where you had to go. <laughs> right. Susie, have you thought about this as someone who lives in West Hartford? I have thought about this. So I live um, closer to Hartford. Um, and I, it's interesting. There's, I, I find, not that I talk to a, a lot of people in town, but the folks that I've, I run into, there's quite a mix of folks who really stay within West Hartford and kind of, you know, um, you know, move around in, in that very small geographical area. And there's folks that are very connected to Hartford. Um, I think we're missing a great opportunity to not be more connected to Hartford. Um, culturally, the diversity, although diversity is pretty big in West Hartford as well, um, I would love to see an effort if the government doesn't regionalize to culturally, how can we regionalize? Because um, I think we're missing out on on a, a lot of great things by not being having a greater connection to Harvard. Sure, I can see that. I'll bring uh, Walt Woodward back into the conversation again. He's our Connecticut State historian. Uh, we're hearing often from our elected leaders, especially from cities, Walt, that um, we need more. They need more support from their neighboring uh, towns and suburbs. Uh, what's it going to take to get there? Well, I think uh, I think it's happening slowly at the grassroots le- level in. The smaller communities around the state, there's a clear understanding that many of the what we don't need necessarily 161 or 169 school districts in, in Connecticut. And they get the concept of regionalization. Where it's really hard 
is when you decide you're going to regionalize, it becomes a pocketbook issue. And when it's a pocketbook issue, people tend to be uh, pretty frugal in the way they vote. Over time, I think the scale is just going to uh, is going to flip so much over to the need for regionalization that people will be willing to do it. Then the problem becomes, how do you form effective regional districts that can provide all services? Where is the right regional school system? Where is the right regional fire and emergency services districts? These are going to be the kind of battleground issues of, uh, I think, the next 20 or 30 years. And um, they don't admit of easy solutions. And Doug uh, Hackett from Southington, do you ha- want to chime in on, on ways that uh, the towns could um, possibly support um, Connecticut cities, which are struggling? Uh, Lucy, I am sorry. That is outside the, my realm of expertise. <laughs> I have no ideas on how we could do better. I do know that here in Southington, for example, we have partnered up with Plainville uh, in order to uh, have a, a somewhat of a regional uh, health department that does the restaurant inspections. And you know, I did. I do think that that has brought us some uh, some savings. Um, I did see some opportunity also in how we run our water and sewer departments and how we could regionalize those, and um, you know, perf- and do a little bit better uh, towards the environment in our pocketbooks. But um, other than that, I really have very few ideas on how we could do better. You know, to, uh, at regionalizing. Well, maybe our, our policymakers are listening right now, too. That's something that they usually try to tackle each session, but we know that Lucy, that I would say, if I could offer one sure. suggestion, could we look at the emergency services? Um, I recently heard that there are 109 different 911 um, centers. So in I heard that New York has one. Why? <laughs> and most states have, um, you know, a couple or one. Um, 109 seems like an exorbitant amount of <laughs> emergency services for a small state. But. And that might be the next question we tackle. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Susie Craig, who's a West Hartford resident, and uh, she submitted a question that we hopefully answered for you on the show today, Susie. You did. Thank you. Also, uh, Jennifer Decola Matos, who is the executive director of the Noah Webster House and West Hartford Historical Society. Thanks for coming on and answering our question, giving My us pleasure. a little bit of West Hartford history. That was fun, Lucy. Thanks. Thank you. And Doug Hackett from Southington, thanks for sticking on with us, staying on with us, Doug. Thank you so much, Lucy. And as always, a pleasure to hear from Walt Woodward, Connecticut State historian. Walt, thanks for your time. Thank you, Lucy. It's great. Now, coming up, do you know the story of the Charter Oak in Connecticut? It's a bit of history. You'll hear all about it after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, a new report gives voice to some of Connecticut's youngest domestic violence victims, children, six years old and younger. On the next Where We Live, we'll hear from the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And later, we'll discuss the impact of zero tolerance policies on students and consider what's being done here in our state to divert kids away from the juvenile justice system.
That's coming up tomorrow. Today, where we live, we've been looking back at Connecticut history, including how our town governments formed. We're rolling out this idea at WNPR called Kinetic Curious. And if you have a question, you can uh, go to our website, WNPR.org. And it looks like we have a, a listener who may have a, a question for a future show. Peter, welcome to the show. What's your quick question? Well, uh, my quick question is uh, about the drought. I know you've been talking about history, Connecticut history, and also how towns and cities work. Uh, and uh, we have a, a drought. I know we've had rain a little, a few days uh, for the, um, recently, but we're a small state, and I was wondering if towns or cities are coordinating. I think each town has a separate reservoir. I think when you get uh, farther up, a couple towns share uh, a reservoir or two. Um, but uh, are towns and cities uh, looking at water or maybe a desalination effort? Um, if for Long Island Sound, Long Island Sound basically has, uh, you know, uh, an ocean supply of water. Um, you know, we're a small state, and, and, and I think the, the we have water restrictions in Stanford and, and Greenwich, and I don't know about other parts of the of the ta- uh, state. Um, but is that something that towns and cities are coordinating with with reservoirs or looking at alternative sources, or maybe even going out of state for some water? Well, Peter, that's a good question, and we'll make sure we jot that down uh, for a possible future segment. Let me ask you before you go, um, you mentioned water restrictions. Do you think that um, residents pay attention to this? Um, I don't think as much as they should. I live in an apartment building in Stanford, and Stanford, I think, has a dozen apartments and office buildings, and I think we're probably using more water than the, our reservoir in the north end of the, of the city um, uh, because I actually go to church up there and I see the water level going. It's, it's looking more and more like a quarry than a um, reservoir. Um, I don't think residents do um, as much as they should. Um, you know, I, I really haven't. I work in a group home and we get some information. I don't even think the word's getting out that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the water restrictions. Uh, so they don't pay attention, and I don't think the word is getting out. Uh, maybe it's not, maybe I'm all wet. Uh, <laughs> pun intended. That maybe we don't have a water problem. I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's just, uh, you know, I don't really know. It's just, you know, we get more information on the Trump administration than the water crisis. How, how uh, silly is that, you know? Uh, so I don't think we're paying attention. Mm-hmm. I don't think the word's getting out. I don't think people uh, are, are uh, uh, I don't think the information's out there that we have a water uh, that we have a drought, and mm-hmm. maybe I don't know if it's as serious as I'm. I'm well, Peter, that. we're gonna we're gonna look into that question. It might be the next show segment that we do. But Peter, thank you for your call today. Okay, you're welcome. All right, thanks. Again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now we're going to switch a little. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Connecticut history, and we were wondering about a story. Um, I'm actually not from Connecticut, but I've heard about this beloved Charter Oak. Joining the conversation right now is Chris Donnelly. He's Urban Forestry Coordinator at Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And Chris wrote an op-ed about this Charter Oak uh, in later, I think it was in late summer. Chris, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So tell us about um, your op-ed and about the Charter Oak for those of us who are not from Connecticut. Okay. Um, well, of course, the Charter Oak tree, which is a white oak tree that grew uh, in Hartford is a a legendary tree in icon of Connecticut, um, and for for um, a couple of different reasons. But uh, the 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 main part of the story with regards to Connecticut history 
is that back in over oh, the late 1600s, 1662, I guess there was a charter issued to Connecticut that um, granted the colony of Connecticut some some very substantial um, um, bits of independence. Uh, it was granted by the King of England, uh, Charles II. Um, Charles II, of course, was the king that was deposed and actually executed um, by his successor, uh, James II, who, um, you know, uh, about 25 years later, um, sent his envoy over to the colony of Connecticut and in in the other colonies in the northern part of the British colonies, and uh, basically sought to collect from Connecticut our charter. Um, and James II's goal was to lump um, the New England colonies together in one big dominion of New England and essentially take away the independence that uh, um, Connecticut had come to enjoy. Um, so there was a big meeting in Hartford uh, in 1687 in which um, William Andros, uh, representing James II, sought to, uh, demanded that this charter be turned over to him. Um, and somehow in this big meeting with candlelight and uh, um, you know, discussions back and forth, um, one of the uh, leaders of the colony sprawled across the table, uh, had some sort of attack, knocked the candle over, doused the room in darkness. Um, by the time the candles got lit again, the charter was gone. Mm. It had been passed out the window. Um, and as the legend goes, was then hid within this huge oak tree that was at that point probably somewhere between 600 and 800 years old. Um, on a on a farm near to where this meeting was held, and uh, um, so basically, the legend of the Charter Oak is that it was uh, through this tree that we were able to retain our charter. Um, and as it turned out, a few years later, um, James II was deposed, and Charles II's son became king, and um, the the rights were restored back to Connecticut that way. And so that's how the Charter Oak became a famous landmark. Now, you did write this op-ed in August. Um, tell us about the significance of the timing. Well, of course, um, yeah, the the, uh, the Charter Oak, um, as I said, at the time of the uh, colonies, you know, 1600s, late 1600s, at that point it was thought to be, oh, um, 600, 800 years old. Uh, one of the stories told about the Charter Oak is that when the Dutch and then later the English were clearing the lands. The local Indians requested that they save this tree because it was one of their landmark trees. It was a council tree. They were able to time the seasons by, for instance, when the uh, buds on this particular tree began to swell. Um, so they requested that this tree be spared during the land clearing. Um, so it already had something of a reputation. Um, it lived on into 1857. Uh, 1856, I'm sorry, um, when in a storm it came down, it came crashing down, um, and it was an event. Uh, people were stunned that this, this tree that had been revered and was, uh, you know, kind of a a, um, a focal point of, uh, you know, mid-1800s Hartford um, had, had fallen down at that point. Um, it was perhaps a thousand years old. Nobody knows for sure how old it was, but uh, yeah. And so the the loss of the tree was uh, was remarked upon. Uh, there were funeral dirges and uh, parades in its honor, and of course uh, people uh, scooped up uh, uh, pieces of wood from the Charter Oak. Uh, it became a real thing. And so that's interesting. So I read that that there was actually a funeral procession for this tree. Yes, I 
Um, I have to confess, of course, I'm, I'm not an historian, so I, uh, I, I read a little bit about this uh, funeral procession at the uh, Connecticut um, State Museum, um, and, and there are some pictures from it. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it was obviously a, a real event. And where, what is located at this spot now in Hartford, where the Charter Oak fell? Um, there's a there's a small obelisk. Um, it, it, it's uh, uh, unsurprisingly uh, next to Charter Oak Place, uh, so it's it's just slightly outside of downtown Hartford. Um, yes, and and there are several scenes of the Charter Oak that are uh, growing throughout Connecticut, including one uh, that's in Bushnell Park um, that was planted about ten years after the the original Charter Oak fe- uh, fell. Um, People presumably had scooped up acorns uh, at various points of time from the uh, from the original Charter Oak, and so were able to plant offspring um, around the state. You wrote in your op-ed, quote, trees and cities do not happen on their own. Do we neglect trees today, and, and what do you think that says for our future? Um, do we neglect trees? Uh, uh, I think... Sometimes in the in the hustle and bustle of, of modern life, we tend to overlook trees. Uh, trees are well. One of the things that that one learns as a forester um, is the sense of time, and things that happen today and tomorrow obviously are important. But when you look at trees, you're you're looking at what happens over decades and sometimes centuries. Uh, so that's one of the th- great things I think about trees. They're, they're, they're living things that span generations that, you know, in the case of the Charter Oak, uh, span decades. And the fact that, or span centuries, I'm, I'm sorry. And, you know, the fact that we're, you know, today talking about a tree that actually fell down 160 years ago is, you know, is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, one of the things I, I talked about in the article, too, is that um, there were probably were people out planting trees about the same time the Charter Oak fell down. Um, and those are some of those trees we still have with us today. And, of course, we revere those trees as, uh, you know, as, as um, a sense of continuity with the past. So there's this connection with uh, what people felt about the Charter Oak um, that we feel through trees they planted today. Now, you're Urban Forester Coordinator at Connecticut's DEEP. So what does your job entail, and what do you see in terms of how cities um, ma- maintain their trees? Um, yeah, I, I uh, you know, uh, assert that without trees, um, you know, a vital, healthy city is not possible. Uh, we, we depend upon trees for uh, a lot. Um, there's a there's a term that people are using more and more called green infrastructure, and trees are certainly a, a, a part of that. Um, but there's more to the story than that. I think um, there there are people that talk in terms of you know uh, trees in, in in strict functional terms. Uh, you know, the, people talk in terms of the sanitary city in which uh, um, you know the needs of our citizens are, are addressed in terms of um, health and clean air and and uh, clean water and, and those sorts of things. And, and that's a very important part of what trees do. And, you know, we could certainly talk for uh, at length about the benefits trees provide, but there's there's an additional dimension to that, which is, uh, you know, people, uh, as the conversation earlier in the show, people, you know, are, are invested in their uh, communities, their cities and towns, and um, that adds, that that adds an additional dimension to it, and, and trees are a big part of that as well. So, you know, if we talk in terms of sustainable communities, um, the natural aspects of the communities, especially the trees, are, are an important part of that as well. 
You mentioned the term green infrastructure, something we've talked about doing a show on. Just tell our listeners a little bit more about what that means. Um, yeah, basically, <laughs> at, at, our, at the core, we are bio, biological creatures with uh, you know, certain basic needs, um, clean air, clean water. Um, and so, of course, we set up uh, you know, engineering systems in many cases to help us achieve those, those ends. Um, but this is something that, that uh, nature and its processes is all about as well. So it's sim- simply recognizing that um, there are, in many cases, uh, uh, natural solutions to uh, some of the uh, uh, goals we're trying to achieve. So, um, for instance, uh, with regards to stormwater, stormwater has to go somewhere. Uh, it can be put in a pipe and, and run off into our rivers or you know into Long Island Sound, uh, or it can be brought back into the soil and allowed to be filtered to the soil as what happens naturally. Um, and so designing for that second option to occur uh, through the use of trees and, and, and taking it a step further so that we're not just saying, boy, uh, we like trees because they're so beautiful, but also they do function in, in very clear ways and uh, uh, take advantage of that. So, you know, making use of, of that capacity of trees. I want to thank Chris Donnelly, Urban Forestry Coordinator at Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And we'll tweet out that link to that uh, story that you, or the article that you wrote, Chris, about the Charter Oak. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Now check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show, and you can learn about Kineticurious. It's a social engagement tool WNPR is using to ask the listener what questions you have. I'm Lucy Dalpithanchel. As always, thanks for listening.